All right, everyone. So let's get started for the Dhamma talk. Are you ready for this? Yeah. <laughs> so it was a bit scary because the Dhamma can be so profound. You never know what you're going to get. And kind of halfway through, you think, "Whoa, this is too much. I better, I better leave this place before it's too late. Before I get dragged into this cult, and then I'm finished forever and after." But no, the Dhamma is very, I don't know, very, very, very interesting teaching. And the Buddha is this extraordinary person. And there are some very inspiring teachings to be found in the suttas. The suttas are the word of the Buddha. And I always like to talk about these suttas. Has anyone ever heard about suttas before? Everyone heard about suttas? Wow, okay. <laughs> That's kind of unheard of in a crowd like this. It's about usually a fair number of people never heard about any suttas. If you haven't heard about suttas, you missed out, but none of you have missed out. What a wonderful thing that is. But still, the suttas are very broad. And there's many kind of nooks and crannies to the suttas, many fairly, you might call them obscure parts that people have never heard about. Now, one of those things that I have always found very interesting in the suttas is the idea of developing perception. Did you know that the Buddha has lots of teachings about developing perception? Did you know that? No, you didn't know that? You didn't know that? Okay. Okay, so even some of you have been around for a long time didn't know that. That's okay. That's a good sign. That means that to, tonight's talk might broaden your kind of compass on what Buddhism is all about. That's always a nice thing here. So we're going to talk about perception, how to develop perceptions. That's the idea tonight. And it is surprising, although many people haven't really heard about these teachings, they're quite common in the suttas. There's a large number of suttas about this particular topic, but not perhaps the mainstream suttas, but a little bit more in the kind of corners and tucked away in the Pali Canon. And to, to start out talking about this, I want to go back to some of the basic ideas and to show you how it all connects together. When it connects together nicely, when you understand the connection between things, it kind of comes together. You understand what this is about. So one of the things that I always emphasize in my Dhamma talks is the importance of kindness. Yeah, the idea of morality in Buddhism is very, very foundational. And if kindness or morality or your habits, if they are developed in a truly good way, meditation becomes automatic. So I don't know how your meditation was tonight, whether it was magnificent or simply marvelous. <laughs> or, okay, okay, ordinary, <laughs> whatever, right? Um, but uh, the thing, the reason, if it doesn't really kind of, um, you know, really come together here, uh, then one of the main reasons for that, one reason is because you're tired, you had a long day, okay, that's fair enough. But one of the main reasons why meditation doesn't come together is this idea of kindness hasn't been developed enough. So living a moral life is extremely important in Buddhism. In fact, it is so important that you can almost summarize the Buddhist path in terms of morality. And morality is very profound in Buddhism. It encompasses the mind as well as body and speech. It encompasses positive habits, positive morality. In other words, doing what is right, not just doing, avoiding what is bad. So it's a very broad kind of idea. This is why it is so hard to complete morality. And especially the external morality in the world, yeah, the way we treat other people, the way we speak to others, the way we act, depends a lot on our mental state. Right? 
Yeah, Eddie? Yeah? <laughs> Just checking. I, nice to see you back, Eddie. So, uh, it depends a lot on our mental state because, of course, the way our mind inclines uh, is the way things tend to come out in speech and actions. Uh. So, if you want to be perfect in morality, it's very important to have a mental qualities uh, that also are right. Uh. It's kind of obvious. If you have a very if positive mind state, if you feel really happy, you get out of bed on the right side uh, yeah, uh, in the morning, uh, you have some positive feelings straight away, you read the verse of Dhammapada before you went to bed, uh, and then you dream about the Dhamma during night, uh, yeah? and you wake up in the morning. Uh. Has it ever happened to you, dreaming about the Dhamma at night? Uh? <laughs> dreaming about meditation, right? Dreaming about being kind, dreaming about being full of service. There are people who have such dreams. You may think I'm just joking. I'm not just joking. These things come from somewhere. I don't say these things randomly. Or maybe I do, but actually I don't. It's hard, hard to know, right? But you hear about people who dream about Dhamma and they become so happy during their dream that they wake up Bang! So bright and powerful. Get into meditation. Bang! Go into a deep state of samadhi. Yeah. So that is the ideal. Yeah. Yeah? And this is kind of where we really want to get to. You want to have a mind that is so positive, yeah? that is so powerful, that is so bright, that has so many good qualities. That meditation is a matter of course. Yeah? All you have to do is chillax. It happens by itself. And even at night, you have dreams that are so powerful that you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just buzzing with energy. Beautiful, peaceful, powerful, non-agitated, blissful energy that drives the meditation practice. But where do those thoughts come from? Right? How? What does the thinking mind arise from? Why is it sometimes that we have maybe negative thoughts, or the times we have positive thoughts? Sometimes we might be anxious about something, sometimes we are joyous. Where do these things come from? The quality of our mind, the intention that we have, the moral quality of that mental state, where does it arise from? And what is very interesting, if you observe your mind very carefully, and this can be quite difficult to do, but when you become really peaceful, it is not that hard to see here. Yeah? Yeah? So when you observe your mind very carefully, yeah, you will notice that those thoughts that you have, uh, they arise from perception. Yeah? Perception is there first, uh, and then the thoughts come from that perception. Yeah? And you will notice that if your perceptions when you start out are positive, uh, you tend to have positive thoughts. Yeah? Your thinking pattern kind of, um, uh, it, it matches uh, the perception that you have when you start out. And this is one of the reasons why I said at the beginning of the meditation, uh, give rise to some positive perceptions. Uh, yeah, remember something you have done that is beautiful. Uh, remember some positive experience that made you joyful and happy during the day or during the last week or at some point in your life. Uh, and as you do that, you bring that positive perception in your meditation, you create a mental space that is positive. And in that positive mental space, that is where meditation becomes possible. So you can see how your mind and all your thoughts and all these patterns and everything arises from a perception. Perception is there first, but to be able to see that, you have to have fairly sharp mindfulness. Perception is there, then the thoughts come. 
you have negative thoughts, if you look carefully, it arises out of a negative perception. You have a negative idea about somebody. You have maybe an anxiety about something. You have seen something on the news and you think, oh no, I shouldn't have watched those blooming news. Yeah. It's kind of one of the main causes of, I think, psychological turmoil and psychological stress in this world is watching the news too much. <laughs> There is some very interesting, apparently, research on that. Yeah, the idea that watching the news has a very bad effect on people's quality quality of their mind and the mental life. Uh, it's kind of psychologically damaging to watch too much news. It kind of gradually drags you down. War here, killed there, climate change getting worse. You know, the, basically everything looks really, really bad, and it makes you really depressed, uh, unless you are a Buddhist, of course. Um, in which case, you know how to look at these things in the right way. Is that true? Do you know how to look at all of these things in the right way? Do you know how to think about all the difficulties in the world so as not just to not be negative, but to be something which actually uh, encourages your practice? Uh, yeah, this is beautiful when it happens. Uh, and I have spoken about this before. I'm not going to talk about it tonight. Uh, maybe another time. Come back later. <laughs> I was giving a preview. This is kind of the tricks for how to get more people in the room because there wasn't that many here today. So in the future, there will be more coming in here. <laughs> so it comes from perception. Perception is the foundation factor. Things develop from certain very basic perceptions that we have in the mind. Yeah? And so because of that, we want to establish the right perception at the beginning of meditation. We want to establish the perception at regular times, during the day even, yeah, during life. Uh, so where do these perceptions come from? Uh? And our perceptions essentially come from the habits of the mind, the views that we have about the world, going deep, deep, deep into the past. Uh, this is our conditioning. Uh, this is the way we have been conditioned you know, through this life, through previous lives, uh, yeah, and going a long, long, long way back. Yeah. And there's a very beautiful sutta about this. You can see this. It's actually very fascinating. You see these things uh, in your own practice in a meditation. Just having come out of the rains retreat, sometimes it's very obvious uh, when you become quite peaceful. Uh, uh, but then you see it in your own meditation. And of course, lo and behold, the Buddha says the same thing in the suttas. Uh, and one of the very well-known suttas that talk about this, what you might call the process of perception, uh, and how perception drives kind of the evolution of the mind and the evolution of the thinking process, uh, is called the Madhupindika Sutta. You know the Madhupindika Sutta, Amita? Huh? Heard of it? Okay, good. Okay, <laughs> good start. It's always good to start with people who have a little bit of Sri Lankan background because that they usually, they, sometimes they know the suttas really well. So that's kind of, that's good. Uh, the Madhupindaka, Madhu means, uh, uh, Madhu means honey, right? Uh, and Pinda, Pindaka is like ball or lump of food. It's kind of things you eat when you go on Pinda, Pinda part, yeah? Madhupindaka, same word. Uh, Pinda part is like you go on arms around uh, as a Buddhist monk, yeah? I often like to pepper my talks with a bit of Pali, terminology because it gives me more authority that way. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea behind that. Uh, so I hope you will forgive me for a bit of Pali. I'll try to explain as we go along. Yeah. So Madhupindika Sutta, Majjhimanakaya 18, middle length sayings number 18. Uh, if you wish to look it up, please do so. These things are available on the internet. Uh, if you search on MN18, Majjhimanakaya 18, you will find that Sutta straight away. Yeah. Uh, and Madhupindaka Sutta is about this perceptual process. 
And this perceptual process is very significant. Uh, and one of the reasons why it is so significant is because it is really the engine of dependent origination. Uh, has anyone heard of dependent origination? Uh, yeah, anyone not heard of not? Okay, one over there. Yeah, okay. So okay, you haven't heard of it. Okay, good. So now we have a we have a customer over there. Excellent. Yeah. So dependent origination is one of the most profound and in many ways interesting teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. And what it does, it shows us how suffering is perpetuated. Yeah, how suffering keeps on existing in our life, this life and also in previous lives. Yeah, this is the idea. So it's a, for that reason. Very, very interesting. If it can show you how suffering comes to exist, what are the causes of suffering, it's all we need to know, right? If you know the cause of suffering, eliminate the cause, you're in business. Yeah, that's kind of the idea there. Yeah. So we want to create, everyone wants to be happy in the world, and this shows us how suffering is perpetuated, especially through the process of rebirth. That is kind of, this is one of the foundational ideas of Buddhism. But the question often is, what is that drives this process? What is the engine that makes this thing work? And this Madhupindaka Sutta can be regarded, this perceptual process can be regarded as the internal engine in the process of rebirth, in this process of perpetuating suffering. Yeah, so very, very fascinating for this reason. So how does it work? And this is roughly how it works. So I'm going to take it in reverse sequence. Am I? Yeah, I think it in reverse sequence. So the, the, um, uh, the Buddha says, uh, well actually it's, it's, it's another monk which giving this particular sutta. The Buddha has delegated giving the talk to this monk here. Yeah? Just like Ajahn Brahm delegates to me giving the talk here on Friday night. It's a similar kind of situation. Uh, yes? Mm. Maybe? Okay, maybe not. Well, I'm, just, I'm exaggerating a bit. <laughs> yes, these, these monks and some of the Buddha were really extraordinary, yeah, and the nuns as well, there were some really extraordinary people, and it's always dangerous to compare yourself to the greatest masters in Buddhist history, I actually shouldn't do that at all, that's kind of a completely bad idea actually, yeah. but uh, this is what happened at that time, yeah, so Mahakachayana, he was delegated and asked by the Buddha to give this talk, yeah. there was someone who came to the Buddha challenging the Buddha a little bit, uh, and the Buddha says, uh, okay, Mahakachayana, you you, he gave a kind of a brief and enigmatic reply, and he said to Mahakachayana, okay, you, you um, reply to that. So he, he then shows this beautiful sequence, and at the last thing he talks about is something called Papancha Sanyasanka. And the idea of Papancha in Buddhism is this idea of the proliferation of the mind. Uh, yeah? The English word proliferation is usually used about plants. Plants proliferate, they grow kind of all over the place. They proliferate out. It's like this unstructured growth. Yeah? You don't know where they're going to go next. It's kind of random growing everywhere. And the mind is a bit like that. It proliferates, it grows, yeah, the mind moves, the thoughts move, all our ideas, they move, and they move in kind of random ways, we don't know where they're going to go next, yeah, if you have watched your mind, it's like suddenly you think about something, you're in a completely different place from where you started out, one moment you're in Damaloka, the next thing you are on, I don't know where, different galaxy maybe, you know what I mean, how the mind kind of works in that way, very kind of unstable, always conditioned, moving all over the place. And this is kind of the idea of proliferation. 
And this is a problem, right? Because if we proliferate a lot, we are not mindful, we're not present. Before you know it, you get upset about something, you have all kinds of desires, you are restless, and it's not really satisfying at all. Yeah, this is the problem with proliferation of the mind. So where does that proliferation of the mind come, come from? Okay, so the, 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 uh, the word for the proliferation of mind is papancha sanya sanka. So part of that is the word sanya, which is perception that I talked about before. Perceptions and um, sanka, like um, reckonings, uh, coming from proliferation. Uh, that's what it means, something like that. Uh. So um, where does that come from? Uh? And the Buddha says that comes from thinking. Uh. Yeah, the thinking mind is what drives this process. So first of all, we think, and then before we know it, we're kind of proliferating all over the place. Uh. Where does that thinking come from? Uh, the thinking comes from perception, from sanya. Right? This is exactly what I was saying before. And now you read the suttas, and it says exactly what you, what you actually recognize through your own experience. Uh, that is, I don't know, there's something very beautiful about that. When you read the suttas, and you see in your own experience that these things actually gel, they come together. Uh, yeah, the way your teacher teaches, like Ajahn Brahm, the way the Buddha teaches and what you perceive yourself, is actually the same thing here. So perception is the driving force of the thinking mind. Once you perceive in a certain way, the thoughts take shape according to that perception. If you have a negative state of mind, you think you know, negatively. Positive state of mind, you think positively. If you think someone is an enemy, you think accordingly. If you think they're the friend, you think accordingly. And so it goes on and, where do the and what arises with that perception, or what comes with the perception, is feeling. What you feel, you perceive, says the Buddha. It's interesting, he uses kind of verbs. He doesn't say you just, there is feeling. He says, there, uh, you feel, right? There's a kind of process. There's a, a verb that is used rather than a noun to describe this. Uh, and where do these feelings come from? Feelings and perception are very closely related to each other. Uh, where do they arise from? Uh, and they arise from our experiences of the world, yeah? the sen sensory experience of the world. And the Buddha says, when there's three things to come together, we, we make contact with the world. And contact with the world is basically experiencing the world. What are those three things? Like the eye. The eye has to be there. The object has to be there. I see Amita, object. <laughs> Sorry, Amita, I didn't mean that in a bad way. I just, you know, you, you happen to be very kind of accessible as you're sitting there. So I, object, and based on that I and object, I consciousness arises. And when you have I, object, and I consciousness, you have the contact with the world, you have experience. So as long as we have experiences, as long as we contact the world, as long as, as our senses are operating, yeah, we will have, this process will happen to us. Our senses operate, we perceive in a certain way, from that perceptions come the thinking, whatever it might be. From that thinking comes this proliferation of the mind that's going over all over the place in this particular way. Yeah. So that is uh, what the, how the Buddha really explains this here through this other great monk called Mahakachayana. Uh, um, so, what, how does this help us? Uh, how, how is this useful? Uh, and the reason why this is very useful is that the way we experience the world through the senses uh, depends on past conditioning. Uh, if I choose to look at 
I'm not going to pick on you anymore, Amit. I'm sorry. I'm going <laughs> to. If I choose to look at someone in the audience, then uh, uh, that choice uh, is conditioned by something. Yeah. How I perceive that person, yeah, Gary. How I perceive you will depend on my past experiences with you, right? Uh, yeah. And so, and these are all coming from past experience. Uh, so yes, there is sense perception, but how that sense perception happens uh, depends on our conditioning in the past. Uh, and so, if we develop our mind, if we change our perceptions through our daily practice, if we change our views, if we understand what right view is in accordance with Buddhism, we look at the world in a certain way, then our sense experience happens according to that right view, according to that right perception. So the answer to make this whole process work properly, to make our perceptions align with the way the Buddha taught, to make our thoughts more positive, more wholesome, more conducive to Dhamma practice, is to develop our view and to develop our perceptions in such a way that when we contact the world, we contact in a way which gives rise to this positive process instead. So this is why the development of perception is so important, uh, because it allows this whole sense perception process uh, to happen in a far better way. We choose better objects, uh, we look at better things, we look at more things that are more conducive to the right, to, to you know, having a good life, to be more happy, to be more content, to have better meditation practice. Uh, all of these things. Uh, we listen to things that are more useful, instead of listening to heavy metal music, uh, Anyone here listening to heavy metal music? Yeah. Oh, you people are, well, one at the back there, okay. One person who is honest. Okay. <laughs> so instead of listening to too much, okay, occasional heavy metal is all right, right? But not too much. Uh, we listen more to Dhamma instead because Dhamma is conducive to more peace than heavy metal. I think that's a fairly kind of no-brainer, right? It's kind of obvious one here. And so we change our entire attitude to things. We do things differently because our view has changed. When we are with people that previously we felt were difficult uh, to be with, uh, suddenly we see them in a new way. We have compassion, we have kindness, we have care for the people around us, uh, rather than having these negative things instead. Uh. So we change things over time, we do things differently. Uh. And uh, this is uh, then, as I mentioned before, actually a very important part of the Buddhist practice. Uh, you start to read the suttas, uh, and the more you read, the more you understand that this is found in so many places. Uh, and now you can understand why. Uh, because it builds up a mental environment that makes happiness, joy, the negative things, you know, things start to fall into place because of this. Uh, and it is also very useful. People sometimes ask, they say, well, you know, okay, I'm a moral person, I live well, uh, I, you know, do a bit of meditation. Uh, what more can I do? Should I do more? What can I do in all of those, you know, I have a long day when I'm at work, when I'm with my family, when I'm with my friends, I do my hobbies or whatever. What can I do kind of all the time? Yeah, what can I do in those kind of situations? And what you can do in those situations apart from living morally and being kind and these kind of things is to develop these perceptions. The development of perception can happen at any time during the day. It should really happen right now. Yeah, right at this moment we should develop these perceptions. Uh, because not afterwards, afterwards it's too late, it's only now that we have. Uh, and right now you can develop the perception of kindness, uh, 
yeah, of compassion, of understanding, of overcoming negativity, right at this very moment we can develop these things, and it's actually right now that we should develop it, because now is the only time we have. And so now you start to see a broader idea of what it means to practice the Buddhist teachings, developing these perceptions. I've talked about this here before, but I think it's a very important subject. That's why I like to bring it up again and again and again. This is usually how the Dhamma works. You hear the same thing again and again, but from slightly different angles. Yeah? And uh, so how can we do this practically? Now I have laid, laid the foundation, and I'm very glad that no one has left so far. It means that you, <laughs> maybe you have some feeling that the foundation is correct. Do you? Have that feeling, or do you have feeling that the foundation is... If it, you thought it was nonsense, you probably would have left already, right? So presumably you are with me, at least to some extent. Uh, so having laid kind of the theoretical foundation, uh, the question is, uh, how do we do this in practice? Uh, and uh, the answer to this is that uh, there is many, many different ways of developing these perceptions. Uh, and when you look at the word of the Buddha, the suttas, his focus is on really on three things. These are the three kind of foundational um, aspects or characteristics of the world around us. And these three things are actually called the three characteristics, the tilakana in Pali, three characteristics. And these three things are impermanence, anicca, dukkha, suffering, and non-self, anatta. Yeah, these are the three things. And a lot of these developmental perceptions revolve around these three ideas. Yeah? Things are impermanent. Uh, things are problematic. They are often suffering. Yeah? Things are non-self. They're a bit out of control. Uh. So if these are the perceptions that the Buddha tells us we should develop, uh, how do we do that in practice? Uh? It's not kind of obvious, right? How do we actually do this in practice? And I think it will surprise you how this can be made very concrete and very kind of useful and very easy to approach these kind of perceptions. And I will start out with some perceptions about how to develop kindness and how to develop the idea of compassion in the world. It's easy to lose our way, lose our compassion, lose our sense of friendliness and kindness to others. Very easy to become fault-finding. How can we become, have less of these negative things, develop a perception that is more positive? And I'm going to give you some very simple ideas on how to do this. Now, when I... Uh, was in Norway recently. I was born in Norway. I'm Australian now. That's what they say anyway. My passport, my passport says actually I got two passports: one Norwegian and one Australian. Some kind of a split personality, split right through the middle. Norwegian, Australian. It's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, so I, I hang out in Norway. That's why I talk about Norway. I hang out in Norway a bit. Yeah, I usually go to visit my my mum over there and these kind of things. Uh, and uh, when I was there last time, I heard about this business leader. Yeah, I didn't know there were any wise business people in Norway, but it turns out there was at least one wise business person in Norway, and I was kind of very, very happy about that. Yeah, because you, you know, you, you, that's kind of how it is. When you see wise people, it's a positive thing. Yeah, and of course, there is a nice distribution of wise people across the world, so they can uh, estimate a certain percentage around the world. Yeah. And uh, this. Um, Business person, what, uh, I think it was a he, was it a she or he? I think it was a he. Uh, and uh, this business person, they, what they said, uh, which was I think really interesting, he said that the way I think about my employees, uh, 
Yeah, because you can imagine being a manager, right? Uh, it can be difficult to be. It's difficult to be the person who has to fault to kind of uh, deal with a manager. But it's also very difficult to be a manager because human relations are always complicated and difficult. Uh, but what this manager said, which really caught my eye, he said, "The way I think about my employees is that everyone is doing their best. Everyone is doing their best." So what do you think? Is that right? Is everyone doing their best in a company? Or is someone slacking off and others working really hard? And I think that was such a profound insight and it gels so beautifully with the Buddhist ideas about how human beings work. Everyone is doing their best. Not only in that company, in the Buddhist society. Yeah, everyone is doing their best. In wherever you work, in your family, with the people around you, Everyone is doing their best. This is such a beautiful Buddhist outlook. And that outlook comes from the idea of non-self. Yeah? The idea of non-self is that we are conditioned as human beings. What we are is the product, how we have been produced from past cause and conditions in this life and in previous lives. That is who we are as human beings. And if we are the product of all the things that have worked on us in the past, then we are kind of we are, we are, we are kind of made by we are kind of built up from that. And our ability to do whatever we do in the present is limited by those past causes and conditions. Yeah? So in a sense, everyone is doing their best. They cannot really choose anything beyond those causes and conditions because those causes and conditions limit them in their ability here. And once you start to think about people in this way here, it actually becomes very beautiful here because you start to think about people instead of getting angry with them and saying, okay, you are a bad person, you are lazy or whatever, you understand that they are trapped by their conditioning. Everyone is doing their best. It's a beautiful way of thinking about the world. And so you spread this out, you make this kind of a motto in your life, everyone is doing their best. Yeah? And as you do that, you start to deal with the world in a different way. So if you are a business leader, then instead of telling off the people, telling them off, saying you are bad or you are too lazy or whatever, instead of getting angry with them, right? Because you think that they can do better if they only put their mind to it, they're actually lazy by purpose or by intention. Instead of thinking like that, we understand that there is cause and conditions behind this behavior. And because there are cause and conditions behind this behavior, you ask yourself, what are the causes that make people work well? And very often you find that people, the causes are you treat people well, they will actually behave well back in return. Yeah, this is usually the way things are. I just look at Bodhinyana Monastery. We have Ajahn Brahm in the monastery. And I know for a fact that when I see Ajahn Brahm, a very large part of why Bodhinyana Monastery functions very well and there's very little, barely any arguments and problems or anything like that, is because you have a leader kind of who leads by example in this way. And the world is often like that. So you look instead, you stand back. You don't get angry and upset because that's usually counterproductive. It makes them worse in the long run. You stand back and ask yourself, well, what are the cause and conditions that make people really productive? Because everyone runs according to cause and conditions, not by ill will or by negative will in relation to the company or towards the management or whatever. Or maybe they have that, but that is another cause and condition in their life. 
And this changes our outlook so beautifully in the world. Uh, and we start to have compassion for people. We start to have a kindness in an entirely new way because we understand how people really work. Uh, everyone is doing their best. Uh, and so this is one of these beautiful Buddhist ways of using a profound idea of non-self in a very, very practical way. And I thought, it's wonderful that we have people in the world. Yeah, this person was probably not a Buddhist. If you live in Norway, the chance of being a Buddhist are zilch. Yeah, they are very, very small. Not, not, not zero, but you know, very, very small. More, more greater chance you will worship Thor and Odin and these kind of things. <laughs> Actually, I think Thor and Odin are pretty cool. Yeah, I, you know, I wish I had kind of discovered them before Buddhism, but I never really got, got there. I was, uh, so I was more like an atheist before I was a Buddhist. But uh, this is a secret. Yeah? So I, I actually have more faith in Thor and Odin than I have in the creator god, uh, you know, the kind of universal god. Uh, I just had to be careful with saying this. It's actually true. That's kind of, that's kind of where, where I'm at. I'm not sure if I'm kind of really backwards or whether there's some truth or that, but that's kind of how I think about the world. Uh, if you want the secret to that, ask me later. I'll tell you the secrets behind that. Um, um, but uh, so anyway, so yeah, so people discover these things kind of through their own ways in, in many ways. And what a wonderful thing that is. Uh, um, but of course, we need to take that a bit further. Uh, yes, that is kind of kindness. How can we develop even more compassion in the world? Uh, and compassion comes from two things, really. Uh, compassion comes from understanding the suffering in the world. Uh, yeah, you see suffering in other people, and then compassion arises. Uh, and it's interesting. I really would recommend you to try to see suffering in other people. Uh, it's so easy to be judgmental. It's so easy to focus on my suffering. This is my problem. But not seeing it in other people in the same way. But everyone in this world has suffering. Yeah, Everyone has suffering that is very, very similar to yours. Because as human beings, we're basically the same. Yeah, We have the same kind of things that we have to deal with, the same kind of people problems, the same kind of family problems, the same kind of issues with politics and the world and climate and what have you. We are in the same boat. So basically, we perceive the world in very similar kind of ways. So remember to see that suffering in other people. And when you start to see the suffering in the world, the suffering in others, then you start to understand, no wonder people do bad things sometimes. No wonder they say stupid things. No wonder they act out of this frustration with the suffering in their life. So when you see someone doing something bad, instead of judging them for their badness, instead of thinking that they are an evil person, understand that in all likelihood they are suffering. There's a problem inside of them. And when you see that, it becomes a beautiful feeling of compassion instead of this judgment and the harsh kind of qualities that we have towards other people. Always see the suffering behind the facade. And sometimes it can be kind of hard to see the suffering. Yeah? Some people, they put up a facade. They may look like they have their act together. They may pretend that they have this super-duper and wonderful life. Yeah? But look behind the facade. And when you look behind the facade, you will see something else. Often that hard shell that we have, showing ourselves to the world in a certain way. That self is an expression of suffering here because it shows that we are trying to be someone we cannot actually be here, pretending to be something which actually is impossible. That itself is often an expression of suffering here. And as you, the more you see this, 
the more you start to feel compassion for the world. Uh, not only suffering, but the other aspect that also is a very important. And the other aspect uh, uh, is uh, the idea again of non-self. Uh, yeah, the idea that people aren't really responsible for the suffering, not responsible for the condition they are in. Uh, they have been formed and shaped by society, by the world around them, by cause and conditions, uh, and they have come to be the way they are because of these cause and conditions in the world around them. Uh, so see the world in this way. So this gives rise to compassion. But don't focus too much on the pure suffering. Because if you focus too much on the pure suffering, you may end up becoming depressed. Oh no, so much suffering can't stand any longer. It's true, right? If you see suffering all the time, after a while, you kind of give up. And this is one of the reasons why it feels so terrible. So you also need to focus on something else uh, to find that balance. And that balance is what we call compassion. Uh, if all you do is feel, have empathy for other people, if all you do is feel other people's suffering, uh, then it can get you down. Uh, so remember that uh, there's many beautiful qualities in people as well. Uh, yeah, you come to a place like the Buddha Society, you come down to a monastery, you look at people, many ordinary people in the world, and very often you see beautiful qualities in them. Despite the suffering, despite the problems, they have beautiful hearts, they are kind, they are generous, they have all of these wonderful qualities. And what a wonderful thing that is in the world. That means that there is hope. Because if you develop those good qualities inside of yourself, uh, that kindness, that care, and all of those things, uh, it means that you will also ultimately be able to transcend the suffering, to go beyond it. Uh, because that is precisely what these good qualities are about. Uh, so see the suffering, but also see the goodness. Uh, and you know that if you help out in the world, if you do good actions, if you are part, if you are a blessing for the world, rather than becoming part of the problem for the world, you will be able to help out. And you will be able to help other people develop good qualities and reduce the suffering in the world. And that is what real compassion is about. When we see the hope and we see the potential for reducing suffering, ultimately coming out of it altogether, then that is what real compassion is about. The willingness to help out and sort out the issues yeah, on a small scale yeah, with our people around us. That is kind of when it all comes together in a beautiful way. So this is the idea of compassion and kindness. Yeah, developing these beautiful perceptions that kind of then feed back into our general kindness in our behavior. It ultimately feeds back in meditation practice. But there's one more perception I want to talk about, because these perceptions, especially the ones I talk about now, they come in, a, in, a, in three, in a group of three things together. And one of them is the kindness, the metta, if you like, or the uh, loving kindness sometimes. The other one is the compassion. And the third one, which is a little bit more challenging, yeah, is the idea of renunciation. So I'll give you one minute to leave before you start talking about renunciation, because this is kind of, this is, I told you it's going to be scary, right? Everything in Buddhism is, not everything, some things in Buddhism are kind of scary. Renunciation is one of these words, especially in the English language. Yeah? Renouncing sounds like you're giving something up and getting nothing in return, right? You just give up getting nothing in return. That is not what it means in Buddhism. That's kind of very important yeah? uh, starting point. If you give something up in Buddhism, it is always because you're looking for something higher. Yeah? 
Yeah, it is always going for something high. That is the purpose. So renunciation is not really scary if you think about it in the right way. Actually, it is something very beautiful. We are aiming for something more. That is why we renounce the low. We start off by renouncing immorality, moving towards morality. Yeah, this is what I have in mind. But to start it off, I want to tell another little story. This is from another person I know quite well. Someone who this person is actually a Buddhist. Uh, but he was also a very successful business person before he was a Buddhist already. But before he kind of uh, before yeah, before something anyway. There's always something before something else. So before <laughs> before something. So at some point he was a very successful business person. He built up this company from scratch. Uh, it was an information company that sold information about carbon markets or something like that around the world. He built it up from nothing into this big company and then it got sold off to this one of these large information companies, Thomson Reuters or something like that. And uh, he became a very wealthy person in the process, right? As, as what happens when you sell off a business like that. Uh, and uh, then he was interviewed, and I saw this interview with him in a, in a newspaper, right? This was also in, happens also to have been in Norway, actually, in a Norwegian newspaper. And he was interviewed by this business newspaper, uh, and they asked him the question. They said to him, well, it must be very satisfactory to have made so much money out of, out of a good idea. Yeah. So is it satisfactory to make a lot of money out of a good idea? Yeah, maybe. But what he replied, and this was kind of what I thought was really cool, he replied, well, actually, making the money, yeah, that was just a consequence. That was just like an arbitrary result. That was like an additional thing that happened, right? That was not what this was about. This was about pursuing an idea I was passionate about. This was about building up a company to create something positive in the world. It was not about making money. That was not what this was about. That was just a consequence. That was just an effect of doing the right thing. And I thought, wow, I'm so proud of this person, right? Here is a Buddhist showing for once that they have understood a little bit about renunciation. They're not doing things in the world to accumulate stuff, more of the worldly things. All of this which is so impermanent and unstable and satisfactory in the end in the world. Why accumulate so much of that? He did it for a heartfelt reason. Because he knew it was good to work hard to build up a beautiful idea and to do something positive in the world. I thought, wow, what a beautiful thing. And then when the company was sold, he made lots of money and what did he use that money on? <laughs> well, a large part of that money he set aside to build up a Buddhist monastery. Yeah, he knew there was no real Buddhist monastery in Norway, at least not in the kind of traditional sense of the idea of the forest tradition with monks or nuns who meditate properly and practice the path properly. So he wanted to establish a monastery, for goodness sake. Yeah. Isn't that kind of extraordinary? How many people in the world do you find who are wealthy and who want to establish monasteries all over the place? Yeah, it's not that many. It's rare. You can count them on, I don't know how many hands you need, but not that many hands, right? <laughs> and more than one hand probably, but anyway. So, um, and so then he did that, and he established a monastery in Norway, and that monastery is now thriving, yeah, and is doing very well, and he continues to support it, establishing it, feeding it with a requisite amount of financial support, but also other support. Yeah, he's this kind of person with endless support, endless giving all the time. 
And this is a beautiful idea of renunciation. Renunciation begins with the idea of generosity, of giving to other people, giving to the world. We forget the power of generosity, and this is the start of renunciation. And of course, generosity, the reason why it is so powerful is because it gives rise to so much joy if you do it in the right way. Yeah? And many of you know that. I know that a lot of people here in the Buddha society are very, very generous people because I know you. Yeah, I have seen you in practice. I know how you do these things. And what a beautiful thing it is to watch people who are generous and who get genuine joy out of the generosity. This is what it is about. And the idea of generosity, one of the reasons why it is so closely related to renunciation, one of the ways you can see that in the suttas, and I'll come back to the suttas again, come back to the word of the Buddha. One of the things that is said about generosity in the suttas, it is explained in terms of certain words. And one of the words that is used, some of these words are the same as the words that you find for the third noble truth, which is the noble truth of awakening. Yeah, the four noble truths in Buddhism, suffering its cause, the ending of suffering, and the path leading to the end of the suffering. The third noble truth is about awakening itself. And awakening is the highest thing that we're looking for in Buddhism. If you compare that awakening, the way it is described in the Third Noble Truth, you compare that with how generosity is described in the suttas, it is a similar kind of vocabulary that is used. Isn't that kind of extraordinary? What is that vocabulary? That vocabulary is a word called chaga. Chaga, we have a monk called chaga, by the way, Actually, is he generous? Yeah, he's pretty good. But, uh, <coughs> so we have a monk called Chaga. Yeah, very nice monk. He's kind of very, he's like a teddy bear monk. But uh, so he's very, very nice. And actually, all the monks are very nice. Yeah, we have a Pitman Metaji. We have so many nice monks. I don't, I don't think we have. Do we have any non-nice monks in Metaji? I don't think so. I think they're all. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I'm not sure if we could say that anyway. But, I, but but actually, it's true, right? We don't really have any kind of bad or evil monks or anything like that. Uh, if you see an evil monk, let me know. Uh, and we. <laughs> So don't tell me it's me. I would be really scary. I think you. <laughs> um, so the words used. One of the words is chaga. Chaga means like um, letting go, right? Giving something up. Yeah, it's a beautiful word. And so chaga, when you let go, you give up. That is like giving, right? Giving up, quite literally giving. Yeah. And of course, when you become enlightened, you also give up. Yeah. It's except that you give up in a deeper way, but the general movement of the mind is the same. You give up something because you're generous, or you give up something completely because of awakening, the general idea is the same. Another word for the idea of generosity is muti. Muti means like freeing. Yeah, you're freeing things by giving them away. Muti. In the third noble truth, awakening, also, you find the word muti. You are freeing, but now the freedom is at a higher stage. But the general idea, again, is the same. Then you have the word patinisaga. Patinisaga also means like letting go. Yeah? It's the highest kind of letting go in Buddhism. In generosity, you find the word vosaga. This is like a course in Pali, for goodness sake. Maybe I'm using too many Pali words. Vosaga, patinisaga. Same root, same basic word, yeah, means to let go, to give up again. 
And so you find, and this is no coincidence, you find that many of the same words are used for generosity as you find for the awakening thing itself. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that really interesting? It means that if you have a feeling of generosity, if you really want to give, if you really want to be part of this in the right way, and you feel you want to be generous, it's a wonderful thing. It means that you have a small taste of the idea of awakening itself, because the awakening itself is precisely this idea of giving up, giving out, letting go of everything. Yeah? So please don't underestimate the idea of generosity on this path. It is so foundational for everything in Buddhism. Please practice it as much as you possibly can, but try to make it come naturally. Make it something joyful, make it something positive, because you know you're doing something beautiful by practicing this generosity. So for those of you who are already practicing this, please carry on. And for those of you who feel you can do better, see if you can do better in this area. And it doesn't matter so much where you are generous. Yeah? What matters is that you do it. But of course, the idea of renunciation, it goes even deeper than that. Yeah? I'm not going to go all that much deeper, but it goes deeper. The beginning of renunciation is really just about, again, the idea of generosity. But it goes deeper than that. And the idea of renunciation is very closely tied in with the idea of impermanence. Yeah? Anicca, I talked about this before. When you understand the impermanence, the unreliability, the uncertainty of the world, yeah, you take, it becomes less interesting. Yeah? Because things that are uncertain, things that are unreliable, things that we cannot count on, yeah, these are things that are not really all that interesting. Yeah? If you have an unreliable friend, they don't become your friend for all that long. Yeah? You, soon you say goodbye because they're not reliable enough. In the same way, Oops, okay, may you become well soon, and <laughs> wish you all the very best. <laughs> okay, Conrad. <clears throat> so, uh, the idea of uh, impermanence is closely related to the idea of renunciation, because when you see the problems in the world, the uncertainty, you cannot hold on to anything, everything is always slipping between your fingers, you cannot really grasp onto things, uh, then it becomes natural to not care about those things so much anymore. And you start to renounce them. And instead of holding to those things in the world that are so unreliable and so uncertain, you start moving towards the spiritual path instead, where you actually can hold on to things to some extent, where you can do things that are more, you can keep for the longer term. Things like kindness, building up internal good qualities and all of these kind of things. And so there again, the idea of renouncing comes quite naturally here because you understand the problems of the world, the impermanence of everything. You start to let it go. And when you start to let it go, you set your sight on something higher, something with real value, something with real meaning, something that actually takes you somewhere. We gain something that really can sustain you for the long run. Yeah? And that is the spiritual path, the spiritual practice. So, let me just summarize for you very briefly what I've been talking about. Uh, talking for quite a while, uh, probably talk too much. Uh, I apologize if I talk too much, but anyway, this is what happens. Uh. So, you start out, uh, yeah, this path starts out. You start to purify your perceptions. Uh, you look at the world in a more 
way that aligns with the way the Buddha looked at the world. More right view, more right perception. And the more you purify these perceptions, the more they align with the way the Buddha taught and the Buddha saw the world, which is seeing the world as it actually is, says the Buddha. Yeah? We want to see reality. Being deluded is no option. Yeah? If you're deluded, of course you're going to suffer. Then from that, you purify your morality. You become genuinely kind because you understand that that is the only way to live your life, is real kindness, real compassion, even real renunciation. And as you purify your mind in this way, not holding on to the world, treating everyone with kindness and fairness, then your meditation comes together. Why? Because you feel really free and good inside of yourself. You have renounced and you feel good because you're living well. Your meditation starts to come together. And one day you start to experience those really profound meditations that are earth-shattering and change the course of your life forever after. These are the deep states of samadhi that really make a massive difference. And you start to understand the meaning of life itself. Everything ultimately ending in awakening itself at the very end of the path. So this is how the development of perception works. So if you think this is a good idea, <laughs> then please, hopefully you can make use of some of this in your life. So that's the talk for tonight. Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, so now you, we give you a chance to um, make some comments and ask some questions if you like. Prem, Mr. Mr. Miri Hagalla over here. Can we have a microphone over here, please? Uh, to the, just in front over here. Thank you, Ajahn, for the profound teaching um, to start the year. <laughs> It's no secret that some deep-rooted habits get carried on from one life to the other. Is it the perceptions that get carried over? Um, it, it is the mind that get carried, gets carried over, right? And the, one of the things I didn't talk about is the um, kind of interplay of the different factors of the mind. Because the mind has, I mean, we often divide the mind up into perceptions, thoughts and views. This is a kind of a standard way to divide up the mind. And there's one very interesting sutta which talks about what is called the vipalasa. Vipalasa are like the distortions of the mind or the wrong, the kind of wrong attitude that we have to the world. Yeah? And those distortions are found at all of those levels, or the level of perception. Perception is like our immediate sense of something, right? Perception like our immediate, how we make sense of the world straight away. They're also found at the level of thought. Yeah? Our thoughts are distorted. And from those thoughts and perceptions, we build up often our views. So these things are all related to each other, views, thoughts, and perceptions. And they're all distorted in a certain way. So we bring with us into this life a whole bunch of distorted ideas, distorted, distorted views of what, what things are actually like. And so for that reason, the reshaping of our views, the reshaping of our perceptions and thoughts is such an important thing because we come with all this baggage from the past, yeah? all of this... Uh, Messed, up, messed upness from the past. Mm. And that is what needs to be sorted out, enable us to kind of uh, uh, um, get the Noble Eightfold Path to start, because the Noble Eightfold Path starts with the right view. And that's kind of where everything comes together. Yeah. 
So, I'm not clear if my question was answered. I'm not, not sure. My, uh, I have no idea whether it was answered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Habits. I mean, it's no secret that, yeah. like yourself, I mean, one number of times you have told us that you may have been a monk in the previous lives, mm. in some other merchants as well. How does that happen? How what what gets? Is it the karma or? It's, well, it, it's the same thing. It's, I mean, karma is one thing. Habit is something slightly different. Uh, it's not exactly the same, uh, yeah, yeah. because karma is the um, the ethical aspect of your actions, right? It's your intention. Uh, so, uh, and but uh, habit is just what you are doing again and again because you're used to it. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have any ethical significance. So there's two slightly different things. So why am I a monk? Is it because of karma or because of habit? I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I think probably habit, right? I just became a monk because I was a monk before, so I just, now I'm a monk again. I, I, there's this nice... Um, I gave a talk about this many years ago, Why I'm a Buddhist Monk, and there's a little booklet about that now as well, yeah. which is available, available on the internet, actually. And many people really like that little booklet. So check it out, Ajahn Brahmali, Why I'm a Buddhist Monk, and you can see it, find it out in there but uh, you know the main story that I tell in that book is that you know when I came to Buddhism initially I thought that was well, because I'm really smart I'm a Buddhist yeah because I'm really I understand yeah I chuck away all the nonsense in the world I kind of get to the core of things and because I'm really wise and smart person there but of course you quickly understand that this has to do with ego yeah once you kind of get into that kind of way of thinking it's not a good idea you know that there's an ego plays its role there so then i started to think well if i'm not very sm all that smart necessarily yeah i could put aside the whole idea of smartness because it may turn out to be completely irrelevant anyway whether you're smart or not so smart what's that got to do with it where does it come from yeah, yeah. And that's when I started to look into some of the things that I experienced in my, as a younger person, yeah, in my younger years. And I had some strange experiences, you know, just very simple things really, like the idea of wanting to, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to live in a hut in the forest by myself. And these kind of things, which I thought, this is kind of weird, but there were more than just that. And that's where eventually it dawned on me that, well, Maybe I, you know, the reason I couldn't really explain why I was a Buddhist monk. Yeah, I grew up in Norway. There's just ice and snow. There's no Buddhists. There's there's nothing going on which remote, remotely reminds you of Buddhism in Norway. Really, no Buddhist friends. My family certainly wasn't Buddhist. They were all a bunch of atheists. They didn't care about any, you know religion at all. And so then I, I. After a while, it came to me that probably the reason is why it happened to me. I probably was a Buddhist monk in the past. Yeah? I'm doing this out of habit. And that's a scary moment. Yeah? Because you think that you're doing things because you're wise. You think you're doing things because it is right. But when you think, realize you're doing it out of habit, it becomes kind of scary. Because then you wonder, is it really right at all? Maybe I'm just a dum-dum who's just following my ancient habits without really investigating properly. So the right answer then, the moment you understand that you're doing anything out of habit, including becoming a Buddhist monk perhaps, well then you start to think, okay, I better investigate these teachings, if they make sense or not. I better investigate them very carefully. I can't take anything for granted, right? And that is where you start to look at the Buddhist teachings, you read them really carefully, you start to compare them with your own experience, and you start to ask, do they really make sense? And that is where the faith and confidence really becomes powerful, because you start to feel these are real things, they're not just a habit I follow, actually there's something very profound and beautiful going on here. So this is kind of how we should think, right? So the moment you see a habit in yourself, 
I'm habitually getting upset. We, everyone gets upset every now and again. I'm habitually getting upset. And you think, that is frightening if I, I'm habitually getting upset. Because if this is an inheritance from a past life, it means I have this now. Unless I get rid of it, I will carry that inheritance with me also into the future. Yeah, very scary. I'm, I may not be a Buddhist in the future. Maybe you get born in Norway next time, Prem. Yeah, <laughs> among all the, among all the snow and ice and whatever. Yeah, and, and you, you, you may not. Maybe you will. You, you'd be surprised. You will enjoy the snow and ice once you get born into it. You may now. You may think it's a horror, but actually, once you're born into these things, you actually enjoy it. Yeah, because you get conditioned a different way. That is the danger. Habit is very, very scary here. Yeah. And this is why when you get this feeling of how scary habit is because you bring it with you into the future, the idea of rebirth becomes very scary. Yeah. You have no idea what's going to happen next. You bring these things with you into the future. And the whole thing starts to look really, trouble, really uh, troubling. Yeah. And you gain energy to uh, get out of this mess that we are in there. Uh, so contemplating habits is very, very useful. Yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah. I have some more questions, but I'll ask them another time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, Ajahn Brahmali, thanks for the really wonderful talk. You know. I have two related questions. Mm -hmm. The first one is, you know, I want to ask you, Ajahn uh, Brahmali, you know, Ajahn Brahmali, do you um, notice, you know, the last few years, you know, maybe four plus two, the last six years, you know, okay, mm. there is some problem, you know, in people's thinking, you know, the perception, you know. People are less happy. I see like jittery, impatience in people, you know, you mm. know, and you know, the negative, also like mm. uh, in certain traits you deal with, dishonesty comes out too, you know. Mm. So I, I take this for, to be from the, the, the mind, from the top people, you know, okay, negative, they have the, the negative thoughts from them, they pollute, you know, mm. you know, and also from the press too, they pollute people's minds, and people become, become like that, you know. Do you notice not? I don't think it's racism mm. from, from, um, from my point of view. It's just like that, you know, people's thinking. Mm. Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing... If not, yeah, not, not yeah. sorry, not yeah, Buddhist-wise, yeah. happy as possible. Yeah. It's outside, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I think that uh, mm. how the leaders in the world, how they behave, affects everyone, yeah. And mm. things tend to trickle down from the top, uh, and that is why it is so useful to have, you know, the worldly leaders, they often get corrupted because the world mm. is corrupting. Yeah? Mm. And when the world is corrupting, leaders will get corrupt, not because the leaders are bad, just because that's the nature of the world. Yeah? Mm. And so that is why it is so important to have alternative leaders, you know, leaders mm. of religion or leaders of philosophy or leaders of spiritual paths. Mm. Uh, as we have in Buddhism, we have something alternative. And we, Buddhism also gets corrupted, right? This mm. is also the dangerous thing. This is why you look around the Buddhist world, you will find corruption in the Buddhist world as well, because it is just a human condition. We get mm. corrupted as human beings. Mm. 
And so if what you are observing in the world, maybe that's true, I don't, I don't know, I can't really tell, but maybe that is true, that people are getting you know, more impatient Irritated, or more bad get, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever. But remember, mm. that is just nature. Nothing has gone wrong. Yeah? Mm. This is the nature of the world. And whenever we see the world and how impermanent and unreliable it is and, how, and all of these kind of things, uh, it is not because something has gone wrong and we should right it and we should fix the world. That is always the wrong way of thinking about it. The right way of thinking about it is this is the nature of the world. Okay, the spiritual part becomes more important. That is the right way of thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. The, sorry, the second part, you know, you, know mm. you gave a talk a few weeks ago on the UN, you know, and how to, to, to introduce Buddhist you know, mm. principles. Maybe, you know, not to correct this, you know, this mess we are in now, you know. Mm. Maybe like a how if you can introduce some Buddhist principles, you know, like loving kindness, all this, you know, the best place but to introduce Buddhist principles in your heart. That's the best place. Yeah, the world outside is so difficult and complicated. I know. Yeah, yeah, you're you know, right. yeah, yeah, put yeah, them yeah. in your own heart. That is the really the only place that you can yeah. put Buddhist principles. Yeah, that's oh. what I recommend. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, Eddie. All right. Yeah. All right. Anyone else? Yeah, please. Yep. Thank you, Ajahn Brahmali, for the talk. Yep. Um, you mentioned that um, perception and feeling are very closely knit. Mm. So my question is ab about feeling being positive, neutral, or negative. Mm. So is so when it, let's say sometimes perception can be changed by somebody saying something to you and you can just see the reverse side of it. Mm. So it could be a positive one and then someone says something and your mind can jump to the negative. Mm. So is Buddhism all about keeping it neutral or always trying to um, see the positive? I, uh, it depends on the circumstance, right? Uh, and uh, in terms of when we move around the world uh, in daily life, then very often keeping it neutral is the right thing because we tend to move between being attracted to things and being repelled by things. You see something nice and you get attracted to it, you want it. You get to see something you don't like and you get repelled by it. And in ordinary life it's often good, it's called sensory strain. There's this kind of evenness of the mind in ordinary life. But in terms of spiritual qualities it's important to develop positive qualities. Yeah? Joy, metta, compassion, all of these things are positive feelings and they are very, very important. In fact, they are so important that the whole path of meditation starts out with these positive feelings. The Buddha has the six anusatis, yeah, the six recollections that we do. And this is really also what I'm getting at with these perceptions. These perceptions are really just another way of thinking about these recollections that the Buddha is talking about. Yeah? Recollecting the good things in our life, building up those perceptions. And as we build all of these things up, it also becomes easier to remember the positive things because we are developing the perceptions in the right way. So it is a little bit time and place dependent, but certainly the positive perceptions and feelings are very, very significant for meditation to work. Yeah. yeah. So when you're fully enlightened, then does everything still have that joy, as well as the equanimity, both mingled together? Um, I don't think you are, even as fully enlightened, you're not always joyful. Uh, you know, you can, you can often, you are economist probably, yeah, and uh, so uh, often you probably have a very balanced mind, but the joy can arise incredibly easily. Uh, yeah, you can kind of, at any time, if you turn your mind towards it, you will feel joyful uh, because you have that uh, access, you don't have any defilements or problems, so, yeah. So, uh, 
Yes, please, fire away. Hi. Yeah. Um, besides Buddhist texts or Buddhist teachings, um, what other knowledge or uh, answers shall I be seeking? You shall be seeking the truth. Yeah. I mean, one of the, to me, one of the really beautiful things about Buddhism, and this is kind of where it really is exceptional, it is a nat what I call a naturalistic teaching. In other words, it is, uh, it is about a di it's a description of the world rather than a description of a faith, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah? The Buddha says the world is not what you think it is. The world is actually slightly different. This is what the world is like. This is the real description of the world. Yeah, and a very important part of that is this idea of non-self. Uh, yeah? Actually, we think there's a self, but that's a delusion. So the Buddha gives us a description of the world. It's a, it's a naturalistic religion in the sense that it reflects reality. Uh. So if, as long as we're seeking truth, uh, we're on the Buddha's path. That's why I'm saying seek the truth. Uh. But that was maybe not your question. Uh. Uh, can, can I uh, find the truth only through Buddhism? Or the truth can be found anywhere where there's truth. Uh. Yeah? Science, hopefully, is truthful. That's kind of the purpose of science, is to find truths about the world, right? Uh, um, any kind of, so wherever there's truth, there's truth. Uh, and these truths should align with each other. And if they don't align with each other, there is a problem. Uh, we have to sort it out. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Uh. Okay. Ben in the front here would like to ask a question. Uh, Bill? Uh, Bill and Ben, that's, cool. that's nice. Uh. Nice alliteration. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Um, I've got to ask about a secret that you mentioned in the middle there. You were talking about... <laughs> you remember? I can't remember. What, what did I... What uh, did you were talking about Thor. I think why you believe in him more than uh, ah. some creation. Okay. <laughs> there was okay. a secret involved. Well, it's not a secret. It's just that the way that we... It's interesting, the way that we think about... Kind of gods and this kind of thing to me is really backward, you know, the way we think about it, in the, especially in the kind of Western world. I, I'm not so clear about how, I think these things are thought quite differently in many places in Asia, at least traditionally. But in terms of Christianity, I, there was a very fascinating book that I read a long time ago by a lady called Karen Armstrong. She's this uh, professor of uh, his, history of religion or whatever, and she wrote a book called The History of God. That's kind of really fascinating. His, what do you mean the history of God? Why? Surely God is just God, right? No, God is not God. God has evolved. God started off as this kind of small, kind of small-time king almost in the Middle East, and evolved stage by stage into this universal kind of spirit that is really far removed. In the early days, he was close to his people, the Israelis, very close to them. Yeah, they kind of hung out together. He prayed to him, and he kind of bestowed benevolence on his people. And then he became more and more removed until he got kind of the modern Christian God who is so removed you have kind of no idea what, what this God actually is. So it is kind of completely, does never interferes in human things or anything like that. That is kind of the history of God. And so I started to ask myself, well, which of this kind of God is more aligned with Buddhist ideas? And I realized that, you know, the, the Christian God is, or the, not the Christian God, but the creator God, the creator God that is said to be permanent and always there, or outside time and space, or however you want to define this creator God, actually makes no sense, because it is something you can never experience. You can never experience that sort of thing, right? If you ask someone who believes in a create, that kind of creator, they say, oh, I have experienced God. Well, like, what 
exactly was your experience? And it will tell you something that does not add up to those qualities of a creative god. Because actually, you cannot experience something that is permanent and everlasting. Such an experience doesn't exist. All our experiences are limited in time. They only last for so long. Even the most profound samadhi experience only lasts for so long. And so the whole idea of a creator god has to be man-made. There's no other way around it. And so then I realized that actually these ordinary gods, yeah, the old Yahweh of the Old Testament, yeah, Odin and Thor, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Hindu gods, all of these ordinary gods, they are far more realistic because they are much more like us. They die, they have desires, they have husband and wives, yeah? they, have, they uh, war with each other sometimes, depending on w- which kind of level of God you are. They, you know, they, they, they are something we can experience, something that we can relate to, much more realistic. Yeah? And so I think that although the history kind of, of religion says, if you ask, you know, oh, we have become much more in the old days, we used to think about these kind of really primitive gods, yeah, we kind of, then we evolved and we become more sophisticated, and now we believe in this world spirit, the real creator god, yeah, so we have become really sophisticated and evolved. I would say, no, we haven't evolved at all, we've gone backwards, yeah, we are less realistic than we used to be. The old Yahweh, that was the real evolution, that's when we were on the top of the game, now we have lost the plot completely here. <laughs> That's why I say Odin and Thor, much more interesting and realistic than this kind of, some of these permanent gods. Uh, anyway, that's my kind of... Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. <laughs> I apologize for anyone who finds this offensive. I, I just, uh, this is the way I, I just uh, think about things. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Please. Uh, you were talking about clarifying perception and how to clarify perception. And I would ask, why is it so easy to go back into those habitual patterns instead of moving towards that clarity, even though that clarity feels fantastic and great and amazing and you want to move towards it? And how do you actually do the practices to move through the resistances? And are there any like milestones or things that you just being like, mm. okay, cool, I'm starting to be more mindful and notice that I'm getting back into that pattern. Yeah, that's basically what it is. That's it? Uh, okay, cool, I'm getting more mindful. That's kind of, that's part, a large part of it. <laughs> but cool. yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go a little bit, I'll say a bit more because uh, that's a bit too short. But uh, yes, that's exactly, you have discovered what is kind of the very difficult part of the path. Yeah, that our habits are very strong. Yeah. And because our habits are so strong, it's very easy to fall back into those habits again. Yeah? And even though deep down you would like to move on, the habits are more powerful than your will. The will is a very weak thing. Yeah? The will is never going to win out. The habits are always going to win out. Uh, so you have to be sneaky. You have to sneak up on your habits. right? <laughs> so, and, and being sneaky basically means reconditioning your mind. Uh, and you have to think about these ideas again and again and again. And as you think about these ideas again and again, your mind starts, to, you start to think in a different way. Yeah? The way I like to talk about it, I talk about this, uh, this is kind of the way I have traditionally talked about this, is that you can imagine yourself as a super tanker. Yeah? You know the super tankers, these enormous ships yeah, on the ocean? Uh, they have like half a million tons of oil or whatever, and they, sometimes they go quite fast, they maybe do you know, 
20 knots or something, yeah, so 30 kilometers an hour. When half a million tons of ship goes at 20 or 30 kilometers an hour on the ocean, it takes a long time to turn around, right? The kilometers and kilometers, the momentum is so large. Uh, we are like super tankers. Uh, the momentum from the past is enormous. We're heading in a certain direction. It takes a long, long, long time for us to turn around. Uh, so just like the super tank, it kind of turns around one degree by one degree, one degree, one degree, slowly coming around. In the same way, you recondition your mind steadily, one degree at a time, until, and this is kind of the miracle, until one day you have turned around 180 degrees and you're heading in the opposite direction from what you were before. So you just have to be persistent. You have to allow this beautiful Buddhist brainwashing. Yeah, brainwashing, right? Brainwashing is... Yeah. <laughs> you have to allow, because we get brainwashed anyway, that's kind of the issue, right? So you have to just get the right kind of brainwashing. So get the right kind of brainwashing, yeah, and then eventually you will be heading in a different direction. Keep on investigating these teachings. Build up the right view. Try to, your very best to understand, what, what is this Buddha talking about? Yeah, maybe he's onto something. Yeah. And then as you gain faith in these teachings, something starts to happen inside of you. Yeah. And after a while, you don't really want to be unkind anymore. You feel kind of aversion to non-kindness because you know it's just dangerous and bad. And you turn away from that, yeah. And, you, um, and it becomes very, very beautiful after a while. Yeah? So don't give up. That's the most important thing, yeah. yeah. All right. Shall we take some questions from overseas, uh, Bill? Yeah. Sounds right. like a good idea. <laughs> what was that, huh? Sounds like a good idea. Like a good idea. Okay, good. So before before midnight strikes or whatever. So, so, so the first question is from uh, uh, Sydney. Dear Ajahn, I was just wondering how Buddhism views the truth and reality behind war and in what way the Buddha teaches us to show peace. Okay, so uh, the truth and reality behind war. Well, this is um, basically... A a consequence of human defilements, right? So when there are human defilements like anger and greed, war and delusion, war arises from those things. Now one of the, I think, very important causes of war, which I find really kind of problematic, and one of the things that we can do a lot better with as Buddhists, is the sense of identity that often goes into wars. Yeah, people are proud of their nation. You see people like you know the like the war in Ukraine, for example. Yeah, the Russians have a very proud of the country, proud of the culture, and they want to kind of you know have a Russian empire or whatever. And I think there's a lot of this idea, the self view and the self identity as a Russian is a very important cause behind that war. And I think many many wars in history are this feeling that we are important, we are the best. Our culture matters matters more, and therefore we have the right to invade others and what, what, what have you. This is terrible. This is a really, really bad idea. So what we need to do is reduce our sense of identity. Yeah, understand that we are not better than other people. We are just di slightly different, slightly different culture. So what? Essentially, we're all the same. No one is really any better. If anyone is better... It is the noble people in the world, yeah, the Aryas, the ones who have really practiced this path all the way to the end. And so taking away some of this conceit, some of this identity, yeah, I, th I find identity and I find nationalism really kind of disturbing when I see nationalism around the world. 
because all it means, it means that our country is, is better. It comes from insecurity, I think, very often, uh, and it's a very ugly thing here. And so Buddhism can bring in some of this non-identity business, and I think the world could do, a lot, do quite a bit with that, and that would already bring more peace. Uh. But in the end, you know, we can do what we want as Buddhists, uh, but we are only a tiny minority on this planet. Uh, and because we are only a tiny minority, we never really, there's, there's no such thing as permanent peace. Uh, there's no such thing as a final point where there would be no conflict anymore. In the end, there's another thing that we have to do, and that is practice the spiritual path in your own life. Uh, and that is where you find real peace, inside of yourself. Uh, and that is the final refuge from the problems of war in the world. Okay, question number two. Dear Ajahn, I was wondering what are your views about advanced artificial intelligence such as chat GPT? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know, it's probably just another turn of dukkha. Yeah. Dukkha comes in various forms. Chat GPT is one version of dukkha. Um, people think that it might destroy the world. Maybe it will destroy the world. I, I'm not so concerned about if the world gets destroyed. Yeah, for me, that's not such a big deal. I don't know why people are so concerned about that. Uh, because we reap the results of our kama. If you live well, if you do the right thing, you're going to have a good future, regardless of what ChatGPT does or says. Yeah, it's kind of irrelevant. Uh, so the end of the world, is that good or bad? Uh, the beginning of the world is much worse than the end of the world. Have you ever considered that before? Uh, yeah, if people say it's not the end of the world, you should say, no, 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 it's not the beginning of the world. <laughs> Isn't that kind of, that's kind of, that's the Buddhist way of saying it, yeah? If it's not, it's not the beginning of the world, it means it's okay, yeah? If it's the beginning of the world, whoa, it's bad, yeah? <laughs> so that's kind of the Buddhist attitude to these things. Yeah? So ChatGPT, it's just, you know, it's like everything in our world. It is, our world is uncertain. It is unreliable. So the right attitude to have to artificial intelligence is that it is more uncertainty, more unreliability, more no idea where this is heading, no idea what's going to happen. Some people say artificial intelligence might destroy the human race. Yeah, okay, I have no idea whether that's true or not. Who knows? But the point, that is not the point. The point is uncertainty. The point is, this is another reason to practice the spiritual life, precisely because of the unreliability. That is what is important with these things. Last question from London. Hello, London. Uh, dear Ajahn, even if you know deep down people are suffering, if you get irritated by their facade, how do you stop having ill will towards them, or even have metta towards them? Uh, if you get irritated by the facade, remember that facades are really just a sign of suffering, right? Uh, so when you see that facade, uh, know that actually, yes, it may be irritating, it may be whatever, but actually really it is just suffering that you're seeing. You're staring into suffering when you're staring into a facade that is kind of, uh, you know, people put on some kind of me, some kind of uh, pretense or whatever it might be. And I wish we were all more honest about our lives, that we didn't pretend so much. Because when we are honest about our own problems, our own difficulties, our own shortcomings, it makes it also more acceptable for other people to have suffering in their life. Make them more acceptable for them too to have shortcomings. If we pretend that our life is great and wonderful, then we're kind of forcing other people to also live according to the same pretense. And everyone is pretending. But it's beautiful when some people are honest. 
Yeah, beautiful when people say it as it is, because it allows all of us to, yes, we are part of the same human race. We have the same problems, the same issues in our life. So when you see that facade, have compassion. There's something going on there which is not very nice, not very beautiful. Someone is really having probably deeper problems down just behind that facade. You know, sometimes we get it so wrong in the world. You know, we worship all the wrong kind of people. We have too much respect for movie stars and all these kind of people. And movie stars often are these people with glossy surfaces and with endless amount of suffering behind the surface. Uh, yeah? Endless amount of depression and problems and all of these kind of things. These things are rife in those kind of circles. Uh, why? Because they live superficial lives. Uh, and if you live a superficial life, uh, eventually it leads to suffering. Uh, there's nothing interesting in a movie star. It's like yucky, basically. Uh, yeah, it's terrible stuff. Uh, who wants to have anything to do with that side, part of the world? Uh, it's madness to kind of have some sort of respect for these sort of people. Uh, there's nothing there. There's no profundity. There's no real understanding. Uh, and so um, this is, we're trying to do the opposite. Uh, and uh, honesty with others and with ourselves, I think, is a very beautiful thing and very helpful to heal the world and heal ourselves uh, as a consequence. Uh, Anyway, wonderful to see you all again. Very nice to be here at Amaloka Center. And I wish you all a very nice night, a very nice week ahead. And we'll see you again soon. Let's have a pay respect to Buddha Dhamma Sangha uh, before we finish off. <laughs>